welcome to this special episode of Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Between February 11th and April 1st, 2022, the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute held our 2022 Congressional Briefing Series entitled Israel and Palestine, Hot Topics in Congress. This eight-part series was co-convened and co-moderated by MEI's Khaled El-Gindi and myself, Lara Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. It featured an array of Palestinian and Israeli voices weighing in on some of the most pressing and timely Israel-Palestine related issues that Congress faces today. The series was held virtually and participation was open exclusively to members of Congress and congressional staff. However, given the importance both of the issues dealt with in this series and of the expertise featured on each panel, we decided to make the full series available to the public. You can listen to the podcast here and you can find the webinars on our website www.fmep.org. Now sit back and enjoy the podcast. Good morning and welcome to the sixth session of our eight session teach-in. It's our congressional briefing on Israel-Palestine, hot topics in Congress. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm very pleased to be co-hosting the series with Khaled El-Gindi, who is director of the Middle East Institute's program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs. Uh, Thanks, Lara. Uh, Today's session is entitled, What is the BDS Movement? Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions. Uh, And what does it mean uh, that the US is legislating against it? Uh, To help us better understand this very timely and very hot uh, topic, we've assembled an excellent group of experts uh, to discuss. I will uh, list them here here in alphabetical order. First, we have uh, Omar Barghouti, Uh, a Palestinian human rights defender and co-founder of the Palestinian-led boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Next, we have Brian House, a staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. Uh, In in the ACLU's speech, privacy, and technology project. Uh, And third, we have Olivia Katbi, the North American coordinator for the Palestinian-led BDS movement. You can read their full bios on the landing pages for this event uh, on both the MEI and uh, FMEP websites. Our our colleagues will be putting those links uh, into the chat box. Also keep an eye on that chat box throughout the conversation for uh, Twitter handles and various links to resources that come up during the course of our discussion. Great, and also don't worry about missing anything because we will be publishing along with the video all of the stuff that's in the chat box. So if you don't catch it, you can't write it down, don't worry, we have it. So the format for this session, like all the other sessions, is gonna be a moderated Q&A led by Khaled and me. Um, As always, we have some basic questions that we've put together that we wanna ask our panelists, but we welcome audience questions. Put those questions in the Q&A box and we will get to as many of them as we can. Don't put them in the chat box because we might miss them. Um, Finally, please note that this, and this is for our participants, this webinar is being recorded. um, And if folks have any technical problems, they should uh, reach out to all of us as organizers in the chat box. So that's it with the introduction. So let's go ahead and begin. Great. So just to help to set the scene, uh, on July 5th, 2005, Palestinian civil society launched a call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel, quote, until it complies with international law and universal principles of human rights. Since 
then the BDS has become a central feature, both of Palestinian activism and Palestinian solidarity efforts around the world. In parallel, the government of Israel and supporters of Israel, including the US government and the US Congress, have attacked the Palestinian-led BDS movement and its supporters as anti-Semitic, and in some cases, even as uh, trying to destroy Israel. Uh, and have sought to both delegitimize uh, the movement as well as legislate against legislate against it, uh, legislate against the use of tactics uh, themselves in the context of activism challenging Israeli policies and actions vis-a-vis -vis Palestinians as a people and vis-a-vis -vis its presence and claims to any part of the territory located between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. So thanks for that background. So. I want to start with Omar. Omar, so to set the stage or further set the stage for today's conversation, can you start off with some basics? Um, how did this 2005 call come about? Who was behind it? And who's behind the movement then and now? Um, and can you talk about the movement's actual goals? I think there's probably some misunderstanding about that and, and what these goals are based on, how they were, how they were conceptualized. And, and, and lastly, I know there's a lot of pieces, why did the movement select these specific targets, calling for boycotts, divestment, and sanctions, as opposed to other tactics that, that were maybe available. Thanks, Lara and, and Khaled, for having this very important discussion. Uh, the BDS movement launched in 2005 by the absolute majority of Palestinian civil society, both within Palestinian society in the occupied territories, within Israel, as well as in the exilic exile community, um, focused on basic rights of the Palestinian people in accordance with international law. It's inspired by the South African anti-apartheid movement, mostly by the US civil rights movement, the Rosa Parks Montgomery bus uh, uh, company boycotts and, and, and so on. But most importantly, it is rooted in a very long history in decades of nonviolent, popular Palestinian resistance against British colonial rule and later Zionist settler colonialism enabled by the British Empire. So it has a near consensus among Palestinians, and that's very important, including Palestinian refugees networks. Uh, because Palestinian refugees make up, refugees and internally displaced persons make up about two thirds of the Palestinian people. That's something important that I, I think most Americans usually miss. Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and Gaza, including East Jerusalem, are only 38% of the Palestinians. Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel are 12% of the entire Palestinian people, and Palestinians in exile are 50%. But even among Palestinians in Israel and the occupied territories, there's a very large minority who are internally displaced. That's why BDS focuses on ending the 1967 occupation, Gaza, West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Syrian Golan Heights, including the wall, ending the system of racial domination and segregation, so full equal rights for Palestinians uh, who are citizens of the state of Israel and ending the system of apartheid. And third and foremost, the rights of Palestinian refugees in accordance with international law. As such, the BDS movement does not take a position on the political outcome, the political solution, so to speak. We're very agnostic about this because we're an extremely large coalition. BDS is an anti-racist, inclusive, and intersectional movement uh, anchored in the International Declaration of Human Rights. As such, it, it opposes categorically all forms of racism, and that's a matter of principle, 
including anti-Semitism. So that's something very important in, in, in our uh, movement. Uh, we reject anti-Black, anti-Latino, anti-Indigenous, anti-Jewish, anti-Muslim, all kinds of racism, misogyny, anti-LGBT discrimination, and so on and so forth. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. once described boycotts for racial justice as withdrawing cooperation from an evil system. Uh, at a very basic level, this means do no harm basically, which is exactly what the BDS movement is calling for ahead, before talking about solidarity. And we definitely do not beg for charity. We call for solidarity, but even before solidarity, at a very, very profound moral obligation level, we call for ending complicity. Companies, states, institutions that are involved in maintaining Israel's regime of oppression, military occupation, settler colonialism, and apartheid must desist must end their complicity. That's the very least they can do. That's why, Lara, we've chosen boycotts, divestments, and sanctions. Of course, we talk about targeted sanctions, lawful sanctions, unlike many of the US imposed sanctions around the world, which are, which are illegal and immoral. So there's a very big difference. Maybe we can discuss it uh, later. But we chose those tactics because they're nonviolent, because they're effective, and because they allow us to build large intersectional cross-movement uh, coalitions seeking justice in all forms. Thanks, Omar. Uh, Brian, I, I'd like to, to turn to you next. Um, we uh, already mentioned the kind of pushback that we're seeing against uh, uh, BDS. I think there's something like 30 plus states that have passed laws or enacted executive orders of some sort or another uh, targeting the BDS movement. Um, and, and there are similar efforts uh, in Congress uh, to, to pass national legislation. And these are not just targeting the, B, the BDS movement, but uh, the mere act of, of calling for a boycott uh, uh, of Israel or its activities in the occupied territories is also being targeted. Um, so while we understand that the ACLU does not take positions on foreign policy issues like Israel and Palestine, um, you as an organization have in fact uh, expressed, uh, you've been deeply engaged Aged uh, in this issue, particularly on these kinds of legislation. Can you tell us about, you know, what are these uh, pieces of legislation trying to accomplish? Um, and and what, what is the ACLU doing to uh, in response to them? And if you could also talk a little bit about how the courts have dealt with this issue when it when these laws have been challenged. Sure thing, Khaled. And, and thank you to you and Laura for having me here. It's, it's a pleasure um, to be speaking with you all. Um, so broadly speaking, what these laws broadly attempt to do is to suppress participation in boycotts of Israel and territories controlled by Israel, including consumer boycotts of companies that contract with the Israeli government or that operate in Israeli settlements in, for example, the West Bank. Now, as you've alluded to, they tried to achieve that objective in a few different ways. On the one hand, you have the Israel Anti-Boycott Act in Congress, which would basically make it a crime for any US person to participate in boycotts of Israel called for by international governmental organizations, such as the United Nations Human Rights Council, including even by providing information to the UN about whether a company operates in Israeli settlements. On the other hand, as you mentioned, there are about 30 states now that have passed laws requiring government contractors to certify that they're not participating in boycotts of Israel or territories controlled by Israel as a condition of receiving government work. Now, the fundamental problem with all of these laws 
is that the First Amendment protects the right to boycott. The practice of using boycotts as a legitimate form of peaceful protest in the United States goes all the way back to the boycott of British goods that precipitated the American Revolution and the Boston Tea Party. And throughout American history, boycotts have played an important role in protest movements, whether it's the boycott of plantation goods to protest slavery, the Montgomery bus boycott that Omar alluded to, um, or the boycott of apartheid South Africa. Now, in NAACP versus Claiborne Hardware, a landmark Supreme Court decision from 1982, the court unanimously held that a consumer boycott of white-owned businesses to protest segregation and inequality was a constitutionally protected form of peaceful political protests, and that the, the government's power to regulate economic activity could not justify the suppression of a boycott. And so for roughly 40 years after Claiborne was decided, there was a total lack of attempts by the governments to interfere with private political boycotts in the United States. That all started changing around 2014, 2015. Laura, I know, has documented the efforts as these state anti-BDS laws swept um, throughout the United States. Um, and now we have about 30 states that impose these anti-BDS certification requirements and we have this congressional legislation. We at the ACLU have been very active in trying to push back on the state anti-BDS laws. We filed four lawsuits, one in Kansas, one in Arkansas, one in Texas, and one in Arizona. In Kansas, Texas, and Arizona, we won our cases flat out. The district courts held that the, right, the First Amendment protects the right to boycott, and it held that the state could not requ require government contractors to forfeit their First Amendment rights as a condition of receiving government work. Additionally, in lawsuits brought by CARE in Georgia, and again in Texas, district court judges also held that the laws violated the First Amendment. The one outlier case was in Arkansas. And there we represent a newspaper, the Arkansas Times, that doesn't participate in the boycott of Israel, but doesn't want to be forced to forfeit its First Amendment rights as a condition of receiving government work. Unfortunately, the district court in that case held that there is no such thing as a First Amendment right to boycott and that the government has the power to suppress politically motivated consumer boycotts as it sees fit. We appealed that decision to the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, and a three-judge panel of that court reversed the district court holding that the First Amendment protects the right to at the very least call for and associate with people participating in a boycott. Unfortunately, now the entire Eighth Circuit has decided to rehear that case and it's under consideration now. And I think fundamentally what we're building up to sooner or later is a Supreme Court showdown over whether the right to boycott is alive and well in the United States. Thanks, Brian. And we're gonna come back to a lot of this in greater detail. As, as you know, I am somewhat, I follow this somewhat obsessively. I also think it's worth making a shout out for the movie Boycott, um, which was, um, it's out now. This is just Visions. Look at three of the cases that Brian just talked about. It, it's a fascinating, a fascinating film. I, I highly recommend it. Um, Olivia, I wanna I want come to you and I wanna talk more about BDS as a movement and the activism around it. And can you talk about the role of BDS in US activism in support of Palestinian rights. What does the movement in the US look like? Where is it most present and active? Who is involved in it, et cetera? Yeah, thank you so much uh, for having us today. So I'm the North America coordinator for the BDS movement, which means I coordinate with groups on the national level here in the US and also on the local and state levels as well. Um, so the list of where the BDS movement is active in the US is very long, which is a good problem to have, but I'll try to be brief. Um, 
We see support really from a lot of different areas. We of course have many Palestinian led groups here in the US, uh, both nationally and smaller local groups. Um, we have Jewish groups like Jewish Voice for Peace on the national level, and there are many, many chapters and smaller um, local Jewish groups and coalition. Um, we have a very large and active church movement, which has been responsible for some of the biggest BDS wins in the US in recent years with, with major divestment resolutions, um, divesting from companies complicit in Israel's crimes being passed at, at the denominational level, um, and other faith-based groups like American Muslims for Palestine, for example. Um, unions have stepped up in a big way in the past year. Um, we had several teachers unions for the first time ever endorse BDS here in the US. Um, the San Francisco Teachers Union was the biggest one, also in Seattle, here in Portland. Um, and, and unions and union members also participated in blocking Israeli Zim ships from docking at multiple ports across North America last summer. Um, we also have many cross-movement partners, so the Movement for Black Lives, Indian Collective, Red Nation, Sunrise Movement, um, and a lot of other cross-movement work that takes place with immigrant, immigrant rights groups, feminist groups, LGBTQ plus groups. Um, the Democratic Socialists of America has also been a major partner in BDS activism. Um, the organization works on, on a wide variety of issues and, and runs all kinds of campaigns from electoral to grassroots. Um, DSA endorsed BDS in 2017 and started a national working group on it in 2019. Um, so they've not only been running candidates for office who support measures to hold Israel accountable for its crimes against Palestinians, but they're winning many of those seats um, and also running more grassroots campaigns at the chapter level. So city level campaigns, campus campaigns. Um, on campuses in the US, Students for Justice in Palestine has done an amazing job passing divestment resolutions at the student level for years now, despite the, the massive amount of repression we see specifically at the campus level. Um, and that piece is so important because we see that trickle up. So for example, Zohran Mamdani is the, the state assemblyman in New York. Um, he founded his SJP chapter in college. Now he is a DSA endorsed sitting elected official in a state legislature. Um, who not only supports BDS, but has experience working on BDS campaigns from the ground up. And that's huge. Um, and I think we see more support, obviously, in the halls of Congress as that continues to happen, as more and more of our movement people become elected officials. Um, quickly, as far as like what is happening in, in all these groups, there are a lot of active BDS campaigns at the national and local levels in the US. There have been some big wins recently. Ben and Jerry's, I think, being the most widely known example, the company decided to end its business in illegal settlements because it doesn't align with their values, which is huge. Um, just to name a few others, No Tech for Apartheid is a campaign being led by workers at Google and Amazon to get their employers to end their $1.2 billion cloud contract with the Israeli government and military. Um, the Deadly Exchange Campaign, which is a campaign to stop U.S. law enforcement trips to Israel to train with the Israeli military and police. This has just entered um, a new phase, actually. There was news that broke this week that the ADL, who facilitates many of these trips, um, admitting in a leaked memo that the controversy around these trips might be too much for them to continue them. Um, there are also campaigns against security firms G4S and Allied Universal, um, a campaign against Pillsbury and parent company General Mills because of their manufacturing in an illegal settlement, HP, Elbit Systems, a lot more. Uh, we're, we're seeing this organizing take a, a variety of different forms depending on you know, the context and what is winnable. Um, but it's really exciting to see so much happening at once, especially despite a pandemic that makes it 
harder to organize, obviously, and despite the repression, some of which we're going to be talking about today, um, people are, are fired up and are organizing and are winning. Thanks, uh, Olivia. If, if I could maybe uh, stay with you for, for a moment, um, we talked about some of the pushback against the BDS movement. Could you tell us what that's been like and what that means uh, for organizations, for individuals um, like yourself who've been targeted? Um, what sorts of activity, what sort of um, uh, measures are they uh, facing for, um, in terms of delegitimization uh, on, on campuses and the media and the politics. And specifically, if you could also touch on uh, how uh, accusations of anti-Semitism have, uh, have affected uh, your work uh, and, and how they've been uh, weaponized uh, against the, the BDS movement and its uh, supporters. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can start with my own personal experience with this. Uh, when I first started doing this work, I had heard of Canary Mission, um, which is a website that is essentially a blacklist, you know, mostly of students of color, um, but also professors and, and just activists and individuals who are active on Palestinian rights. Um, Canary Mission's goal is to try to get these people fired, blacklisted, and worse. Uh, I've, I've had a Canary Mission page for years. You know, it's pretty inaccurate. It includes a lot of my social media posts um, and information about me, some of which is true, most of which is not. Um, I never really thought much of it. Uh, then during like the, the turmoil of 2020 with you know all the uprisings against police violence um, and the presidential elections, I was doxxed by fascists on 4chan, which is a, a Nazi forum. Uh, my social security number was posted, my address, information about my family. And just after that, I showed up as anti-Semite of the week on a site called stopantisemitism.org, um, which is funded by the same funders of Canary Mission run by the same group of people. Um, and the allegations of my supposed anti-Semitism were that I support BDS, that I'm a member of DSA, and that I had a picture with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Um, and I know that I came up on their radar from, from the 4chan posts. Um, you know, it wasn't a coincidence that these things were happening at the same time. Um, I immediately started getting death threats. People were looking into my life. They were making comments about my dead brother. I actually ended up having to move because the combination of threats and harassment from both the, the alt-right who had started this on these Nazi forums and then the Zionists who followed that account um, made it unsafe to live at my house. So my Twitter account was also immediately suspended. You know, I got it back eventually, but it just kept happening. And, and this happens to so many more people. Um, you know, just college students who don't have connections or any means of like fighting back against this. And especially for someone who might have a job that's not in activism or politics, you know, where this context is not clear, they lose their jobs. It happens all the time. Um, I just actually saw news broke yesterday that a Palestinian athletic trainer at a school in Philadelphia was fired because of her Canary Mission profile um, that just documented her time in SJP while she was in college. Um, she's filing a, a federal discrimination charge, I think. And, but that just happened yesterday, you know, news that I happened upon while I was preparing for this panel. That's how often this kind of thing happens. Um, and it's because of sites like Canary Mission and organizations like the ADL that paint criticism of the state of Israel, which has been called an apartheid state by all the main leading human rights organizations, they paint that as anti-Semitic. 
Thanks, Olivia. And I, I think some our colleague threw into the chat um, an article documenting some of your ordeal, which I think is really instructive. I hope people will, will take the time to read about that and, and listen to those interviews with you, which I would recommend as well. Um, Omar, I want to come back to you and I want to be a little polemical here. I want you to address head on some of the main lines of arguments that probably a lot of people who are listening. I went to school at Columbia, so I'm used to polemical. Right, good. All right. So, so a lot of people who are listening to or watching this webinar down the road have heard a lot about BDS. So can you take on some of the claims made against BDS like, I'm just gonna list them off, I've got them written down. The claim that the goal of BDS is to delegitimize and destroy Israel. The claim that the movement unfairly singles out for Israel for criticism while ignoring the bad behavior of other countries, which the corollary argument is if you're doing that, the only reason you would ever single out Israel must be because you're an anti-Semite. Um, there's the argument that BDS supports, makes common cause with, empowers anti-Semitic movements like the white supremacists and Nazis who went after Olivia. Um, and then more generally, the argument that BDS is just a thin political cover for what is actually just old school anti-Semitism. Thanks. Of course, the, the whole goal of these smears and those fabrications is to push us into a defensive trap so that we will not talk about Sheikh Jarrah and the uh, ethnic cleansing in Al-Naqab I, we will not talk about the siege of Gaza, people brought to the verge of starvation, denied basic, basic rights, so that we will forget all that and just focus on defending, uh, which we refuse to do. But here, it's important to set the record straight and answer those, uh, uh, even if it's kind of a defense, but it's an intellectual and human rights defense that we need to do. First, on the claim that BDS, a nonviolent movement seeking freedom justice and equality for the Palestinian people in accordance with international law would, quote, destroy Israel. If freedom, justice, and equality would destroy Israel, what does that say about Israel? What is it premised on so that freedom, justice, and equality would destroy it? Did freedom and equality destroy Alabama? Did they destroy South Africa? Obviously not. Freedom ends colonial enslavement. Justice ends injustice and oppression. Equality ends apartheid and Jim Crow. So BDS works to dismantle Israel's regime of military occupation, settler colonialism, and apartheid. It's not very difficult to understand. Unlike the currently popular hysterical Western boycotts, and we will not get into that now, I know, that are based on nationality, ethnicity, or political opinion, BDS does not target individuals, it targets institutions. That's a very, very important difference even between us and the South African anti-apartheid boycotts. We target institutions, we don't target individuals. Uh, we target institutions that are implicated in the regime of oppression. BDS does not target identity, it targets complicity. So if a company is implicated in, in apartheid's uh, denial of our rights under international law, we do not care what identity this com company has, whether it's American, French, Chinese, German, or Emirati, as long as it's implicated in war crimes and, and violations, we will boycott this company and, and call for divestments uh, from it. So BDS is based on complicity, not identity. On singling out Israel, this, is, this must be the weirdest of all the accusations. It is Israel and the Zionist movement that have singled out Palestine and the indigenous people of Palestine for their colonial project. It's not we who chose who colonized Palestine. 
uh, we, it's not we who chose who did the ethnic cleansing, the dispossession, the massacres, the siege, the apartheid uh, regime and the occupation. It was them who singled us out. So the oppressed never single out the oppressors. As the Brazilian thinker, Paulo Freire uh, uh, said, the initiators of oppression are the initiators of violence. They are the initiators of this singling out, so to speak. Also, while many states around the world are targeted by Western, mostly US sanctions, Israel, despite its decades old regime of military occupation and apartheid has never faced any targeted sanctions. The US, on the contrary, with support from Europe, singles out Israel by showering it with unconditional military funding to the tune of almost $4 billion a year by shielding it from international accountability and censure at the UN and elsewhere, by using its veto power and its brute power of intimidation and threats against weaker states, and also by dehumanizing Palestinians, thereby normalizing Israeli crimes against us. So Israel kills three Palestinians in a matter of days, and it's not in the media because we do not count. This normalizing of the dehumanization of Palestinians is part of what the US establishment and the mainstream media have done. On the weaponized smear of anti-Semitism and its uh, uh, clear use to silence us. As I said earlier, BDS has categorically and consistently, since its launch in 2005, rejected all forms of racism, including anti-Semitism. This is a matter of principle for us. It's not a tactic. A poll last year actually showed that 25% of Jewish Americans believe that Israel is an apartheid state. So it's not really an anti-Semitic thing to say Israel is an apartheid state. Amnesty International would not be anti-Semitic just because it reached that conclusion after four and a half years of research. While a poll just last month, weeks ago, reveals that 16% of Jewish Americans support BDS. 16% of Jewish Americans support BDS. Uh, conflating calls for boycotting, divesting from and imposing legal targeted sanctions on Israel to end its apartheid regime on the one hand, with racism, hate, bigotry, and discrimination against Jews for being Jews is not only false and deceptive, it is based on an anti-Semitic premise, no less, because it reduces all Jewish persons to a monolith entirely represented by or coextensive with Israel. So tens of progressive Jewish organizations have resolutely rejected this conflation, not just because it is designed to silence advocacy of Palestinian rights, to, 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 to violate the First Amendment of the US Constitution, but also because it undermines the very struggle against real anti-Jewish racism, as they said. Finally, Israel's apartheid regime is the last one to use to weaponize this smear as it maintains excellent ties, mostly military and security ties, with authoritarian regimes and dictatorships worldwide, many of whom are clearly anti-Semitic. Orban in Hungary, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, MBS in Saudi Arabia, and, and so on and so forth. But Israel's arguably most ardent supporters in the US are Christian Zionists and white supremacists who adopt a patently anti-Semitic theology that we have no time to go into right now, but it's very, very clear how anti-Semitic the Christian Zionist theology is. Yet that does not seem to bother Israel. So long as they work with Israel against Palestinian rights, that's perfectly fine. So to end, as a human rights movement, 
as an anti-racist movement, we agree with progressive Jewish organizations that dismantling anti-Semitism must be an integral part of fighting white supremacy and all forms of racism. Advocating for Palestinian rights cannot possibly be equated with anti-Jewish hate unless someone is saying ending apartheid, ending colonialism is antithetical to what it means to be Jewish. There's nothing Jewish about ethnic cleansing, siege, occupation, and apartheid, and therefore there's nothing inherently anti-Jewish in struggling to end these injustices. Thanks, Omar. Um, Brian, I'd like to come back to you uh, and, and pick up the, the, the issue of legislation. Uh, we talked about the legislation that targets boycotts, but in parallel, uh, we've also seen an attempt to, to legislate uh, new definitions of anti-Semitism that explicitly uh, uh, conflate, as, as uh, Omar and, and, and Olivia mentioned, conflate criticism of Israel with, uh, with anti-Jewish uh, bigotry. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, this new definition uh, has been drafted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, the IHRA uh, definition, uh, which has already been instrumentalized widely to argue that BDS is ipso facto anti-Semitic and therefore hate speech and, and illegitimate. Um, and it was given the force of law by a, uh, an executive order uh, by the previous administration, uh, one uh, that the current administration incidentally has uh, left in place. Can you talk about how the uh, ACLU views these efforts to legislate this new definition uh, of anti-Semitism uh, and what impact that has on free speech? Sure thing. So the problem with the IRA definition as its own author has argued is that it was meant to be used as a diagnostic tool for hate crimes research, not as a yardstick for a speech code. So if someone assaults a Jewish person out of the blue and you're trying to figure out whether the attack was motivated by the victim's Jewish identity, you might wanna know whether the person's reference to Zionists really just means Jews. And so in those contexts, speech can be evidence of anti-Semitic intent. But many of the legislatures and organizations advocating the incorporation of the IRA definition into civil rights laws are really focused on using the definition to suppress political speech itself. And that's where it runs afoul of the First Amendment. The fundamental point here is that speech critical of any government organization, whether it's Israel or Russia or Saudi Arabia or the United States, is political speech lying at the heart of the First Amendment. And when it comes to political speech, it doesn't matter if it's putatively racist, reverse racist, sexist, homophobic, unpatriotic, you name it. All of that is protected by the First Amendment. And for good reason. People have profound disagreements about what these terms mean, and the party in power would be able to use them as it sees fit to suppress the political opposition. So in order to preserve public debate, the First Amendment puts the whole category of speech almost entirely beyond the reach of government regulation. So what that means is that people are free to disagree about whether BDS is anti-Semitic or not. What they can't do is prevent people from engaging in a peaceful form of political protest simply because they don't like the message being espoused. And that is what the IRA definition is fundamentally trying to do here. So with, with regards to the Trump executive order specifically, you know, what was tricky about that order is that it's exceedingly vague about it, what, what it actually does. And I think that's by design. On the one hand, it could do 
you know, what I originally referenced, this, this idea that, you know, speech can sometimes be evidence of anti-Semitic intent. Well, if that's all it does, perhaps that's not that controversial. Speech can be evidence of intent in all sorts of contexts, and that wouldn't really be doing anything new. But I think by singling out speech critical of Israel as a potential form of violation of, of federal civil rights laws, what it's really trying to suggest to universities in a place where a lot of political speech is already under threat from university administrations, and there's, this has been well documented, is to suggest that if you're not careful, if you don't suppress any you know, event that discusses Palestinian rights or that's critical of Israel, you might get a Title VI complaint filed with the Education Department of Office of Civil Rights. The federal government might come and investigate you and that's gonna cause all sorts of problems for your donors and your trustees and, and the university's reputation more broadly. And so there's just a fundamental chilling effect from having this kind of order out there. And that's why we've long opposed it. So Brian, thank you. And I, I'm, I wanna stick with you um, on legislation for a second. You, you talked earlier about the Israel Anti-Boycott Act, you mentioned it. And, and for folks who don't follow this as obsessively as I do, that legislation has been reintroduced in Congress. It was introduced earlier this month by a group of Republicans. It's the same, basically same text that we saw last time around. Um, this legislation, which in its various forms and in previous forms it has enjoyed bipartisan support, let's be clear, seeks to impose harsh penalties, you talked about this, on Americans who engage in, call for, or otherwise support boycotts of Israel and or settlements, and it has been repeatedly denounced by the ACLU. Can you talk more about the ACLU's reasoning on why it's opposing this legislation? Um, and can you talk more broadly about the threat legislation like this poses to free speech writ large? And, and just an additional thing, um, which I'm just I'm listening to you talk about this, one of the arguments that often comes up is this isn't new legislation, this is just an expansion of the old anti-boycott legislation that was so non-controversial about the Arab League boycott of Israel, you know, this is just updating it for new circumstances. Can, can you also take that on? Sure thing. So we've been opposing the Israel Anti-Boycott Act for the same reason that we've been successfully challenging the state anti-BDS laws, because they infringe the fundamental First Amendment right to boycott. Now, as you mentioned, Laura, the act would amend an existing law, the Export Administration Act, that makes it a crime to enter into an agreement with a foreign country to boycott countries friendly to the United States. That law was passed in the 1970s in response to the Arab League's boycott of Israel. At that time, in order to do business in Arab League countries, US companies had to promise that they wouldn't do business in Israel. So effectively, the Arab League countries were using their market power to coerce American companies into taking political positions. And the Export Administration Act was designed to prevent that coercion by making those sorts of commercial agreements illegal. It was not designed to prevent US companies from voluntarily participating in politically motivated boycotts of countries with which the United States enjoys trade relations. I mean, the United States enjoys trade relations with most countries around the world, including until very recently, we had normal trade relations with Russia. And at the same time, you saw you know, the governor of Texas encouraging businesses to boycott Russia. So I don't think anybody thought that those boycotts would have violated the Export Administration Act. It was really targeted at agreements with foreign countries not to do business um, in countries friendly to the United States. The Israel Anti-Boycott Act is kind of the mirror image of that. It applies to international governmental organizations like the UN, which don't have that kind of coercive market power. So when the UN Human Rights Council calls for a boycott of companies that are, are operating in Israeli settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories, if someone wants to support that boycott, either by giving information to the UN Human Rights Council or by refusing to buy goods from the companies that are listed 
in the UN Human Rights Council's database. That's a politically motivated decision to refuse to purchase consumer goods or services that is fully protected by the First Amendment. It's not a commercial arrangement. And in fact, what the state anti-BDS laws and what the Israel Anti-Boycott Act are doing is essentially what the Arab League countries were doing back in the 70s. They're trying to use um, the coercive power and the market power of the United States government or the state governments to dictate the political choices of American individuals and American companies. Now, the crucial difference, I think, between the Israel Anti-Boycott Act and the state anti-BDS laws is the Israel Anti-Boycott Act doesn't just deny government contracts to companies um, that participate in boycotts of Israel or, or, or Israeli settlements. It actually makes it a federal felony um, for someone to participate in these kinds of boycotts. And I think that just shows the fundamental logic at play here, um, which is that you know if you give a mouse a cookie, it's gonna ask for milk, right? So if, if you give the government to, the power to regulate boycotts in this one narrow context, once you've established the principle that boycotts are not protected, the government's gonna start claiming that power in all sorts of different contexts. And you end up very far down the slippery slope um, before courts are able to step in. Thanks, Brian. Um, Olivia, I, I wanted to come back to you. Um, we hear the word intersectionality uh, a lot, um, particularly in the last few years. Um, can you talk about what intersectionality means in the context of the Palestinian rights movement uh, in the US? Uh, and in particular with regard to, uh, to BDS, uh, in terms of, you know, relationships with other grassroots rights-based movements like the Movement for Black Lives, the Dream Defenders, and so on. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think by intersectionality, we just mean that struggles for justice and freedom across the world by oppressed peoples are, are linked together. Um, there has been a long history of shared struggle between the South African anti-apartheid movement and the Palestinian anti-apartheid movement. Um, here in the US with the start of the Black Lives Matter movement in Ferguson in 2014, you know, there was immediately a bond formed between black activists and Palestinian activists who were being subjected to tear gas at the same time, manufactured by the same company um, and exchanging tips on how to deal with that on social media. Um, that solidarity continued to build over the years with groups like Black for Palestine forming, um, Dream Defenders, which is an organization that works towards the end of policing and prisons in the US, um, was sending delegations to Palestine. Um, and more broadly, we've seen people and activists and organizations take a more intersectional approach to, to all progressive issues here in the US. So. Sunrise Movement, for example, talks about climate justice and what specifically climate justice looks like for Palestinians. Um, activists at the local level are working towards ending police exchanges between the US and Israel, while also working towards winning demands to defund the police. Um, I think it's become really clear the way that our oppressions intersect. Um, you know, we send nearly $4 billion a year in military funding to Israel and our cities in the US consistently spend the most money on police more than any other resources. You know, we are spending this money on violence abroad and here at home instead of spending it on healthcare, housing, jobs, things people actually need. You know, we're struggling under the same violent system with the same big companies and weapons manufacturers profiting from our oppression. You know, there are a lot of companies like Palantir, for example, like HP, um, that provide technology for prisons and police here in the US and on the border uh, with US and Mexico and for the Israeli military in prisons. 
Um, you know, we saw this massive uprising against police violence in 2020. Um, I know I did here in Portland when they sent in, um, you know, federal officers and all of us in the Palestine movement were, were out on the streets to take part in that struggle. Um, and then in the summer of 2021, following the escalation of Israeli violence that spring, the organizing and solidarity for, for Palestine was explosive. You know, it kind of seemed like it came out of nowhere, but this is actually what organizers have been working towards for years. We've been planting these seeds and, and building this movement, um, leading to that big outpouring of solidarity we saw last year. Um, and not just Palestine organizers, but organizers who work on a variety of progressive issues, organizers who see and, and name the interconnectedness of our struggles and the links that we have to break. You know, the military industrial complex that is so rooted right here in the Imperial core, the police violence that we are struggling against in the US is the same militarized violence that Palestinians are struggling against. Um, and so the protests of, of the summer of 2020 and Ferguson before that really created that space, um, not only to, to struggle against that violence here in the Imperial core, but to make those connections globally and realize um, that our struggles are the same and that we actually can't dismantle one small part of the system without talking about it as a system, you know, going after the system as a whole. Thanks for that. I mean, I will say when, when people talk about intersectionality, it sometimes seems like they think that this is just a code word that people use to try to get other people on board and they don't recognize the amount of showing up that stands behind it. And that since Ferguson really, I mean, the great awareness that there's a showing up for each other on which that 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 sense of co, co of shared challenges based. It's been it's been really quite extraordinary to 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 track. Um, so Omar, I want to come back to you. And I think you you sort of referenced this in passing before. It it does seem like everyone today is jumping on the BDS bandwagon. Um, but of course, not with respect to the fight for rights for Palestinian rights, but in support of Ukrainian rights. Um, and, and this feels a little bit like I, I said to someone, a case of BDS tactics for me, but not for me. Um, what, what do you make of this very different reception of BDS tactics in these two contexts? And to be clear, I mean, there are Republican, you know, conservative members of Congress tweeting out the need for, I mean, they use the terms in the same order, you know, boycott, divestment and sanctions against Russia. It's quite extraordinary. Um, and, and what do you say to people who argue, yeah, fine, I hear what you're saying, but it is illegitimate and maybe even anti-Semitic to in any way compare the situations of Israel and Palestine with Russia and Ukraine. And by extension, it is illegitimate and even anti-Semitic, they would say, to suggest that supporting BDS in one context, but not in the other, is in fact um, blatant hypocrisy. Um, thanks for this. I would not call it BDS because BDS is a proper noun. It's the Palestinian-led movement uh, that, that created this acronym. It's boycotts, divestments, and sanctions, but they're not BDS. What they're doing against Russia, against Cuba, that, call it anything but not BDS because it, it, it tarnishes the, the good name of BDS. Uh, and I'll explain that a bit. But the Palestinian leadership of the BDS movement, which is the broadest coalition Palestinian society, as we spoke, opposes wars including the current Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is illegal as it violates the UN Charter. And the, regardless of NATO provocations, of course, it's still illegal. And also the many patently illegal, immoral US or NATO-led wars of the past decades, which have devastated whole nations and killed millions from Vietnam to Iraq and Afghanistan and many in between. We see in the West's warm reception of Ukraine's white refugees, an example 
or how all refugees should be treated. All refugees escaping war, devastation, economic, climate injustice, and so on, especially when these calamities are primarily caused by Western imperialism. So this warmth stands in sharp contrast with how countries actually deal with refugees of color, brown and black refugees arriving at their shores and borders, racism, walls, pushbacks, forced family separations, drownings, the same bigotry that non-white refugees from Ukraine are experiencing now. This Western hypocrisy, double standard, as you mentioned, is painful. It's humiliating to people of the global South, including Palestinians. Uh, uh, especially for Palestinians, Israel's decades-old regime of oppression, of apartheid, is not only made in the West, it is armed, funded, and shielded from accountability by that same deeply colonial racist West, in particular the US establishment, the UK, the EU. So mainstream Western media, including a surprisingly fair New York Times article, has begun to favorably compare what an uh, Agence France Press AFP report describes as, quote, the much more sophisticated institutional and complicity-based BDS boycott of apartheid Israel with the alarmingly xenophobic identity-based McCarthyite boycotts against ordinary Russians. And that's the first time that BDS is compared favorably with other boycotts. Western and Western-dominated institutions that have for 17 years since BDS was established 17 years, they've rejected our demands for excluding apartheid. They've used platitudes such as arts, sports, academia, whatever you want, are above politics. Suddenly, they adopted sweeping political boycotts of not only Russia, but ordinary Russians. Even Tchaikovsky and Dostoevsky, both of whom died in the 19th century, were not spared those hysterical uh, boycotts. As Ali Farag, an Egyptian world champion in squash said, quote, we've never been allowed to speak about politics and sports, but all of a sudden it's allowed. I hope people look at oppression everywhere around the world. Palestinians have been going through that for the past 74 years. Without Ukraine, Ali Farag would have been expelled from the squash competition, probably banned for life or for many years, as some Algerian, Moroccan, and uh, Iranian, and others have been banned because of saying something very similar, because you can't mix sports and politics. Now it's okay. So this hypocrisy and the speed with which all these Western-dominated entities have boycotted, expelled, or otherwise sanctioned Russia, and ordinary Russians, again, that's what concerns us, that the attacks against ordinary Russians based on ethnicity, nationality, and, and opinion, only days after the invasion of Ukraine, th this hypocrisy sends a very clear racist message to Palestinians, to Yemenis, to Iraqis, to Afghanis, and many other people of color worldwide that our lives and our rights do not count. So this is the key of, of uh, the, the, this problem. That's why I would not call it BDS, because it would tarnish our good name. What they're doing with those uh, hateful xenophobic boycotts is antithetical to the very moral foundations, moral principles of the BTS movement. We target complicity. We want to end complicity to enjoy our rights under international law. We do not want to cause harm out of vengefulness to hurt people. We want our rights.
Thanks, Omar. Uh, you know, I can't help but think in this discussion about uh, hypocrisy and double standards, uh, we don't even have to go as far away or as far afoot as, as Russia and, and Ukraine. Um, I would venture to, to, to guess that there is probably no single group uh, that is under more boycotts and divestment and sanctions uh, by the US Congress uh, than the Palestinians themselves. I mean, there it, you know, and probably nobody's done a better job of, of uh, cataloging those measures uh, than, than Laura Friedman. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's really quite striking. Um, but it, it, in any case, I want to come uh, stay with you, uh, Omar. Um, when, uh, where do you see things headed uh, with BDS in its role uh, and its role in the battle for Palestinian rights in the future? Does the Ukraine and, and other parallels uh, open up more uh, possibilities and, and avenues for the, the Palestinian BDS movement, uh, both by legitimizing the tactics that uh, BDS employs? Boys, obviously boycotts, divestment, sanctions, and by breathing new life into uh, support for things like a rules-based international order and, and international law uh, and international human rights norms. Um, so what do you, and, and also if I could tack on to that, um, in terms of the comparison, um, what do you say to those who would argue that the BDS movement is in fact a failure precisely because unlike in the Russian case, it, it has failed to enlist the support of even a single government. Um, and, and how does the, the growing consensus uh, around calling, um, so I'm, I'm adding a lot here, uh, how does the growing consensus uh, around calling Israel uh, an apartheid state as Human Rights Watch, B'Tselem, Amnesty uh, have all done, um, something that Palestinians have been uh, saying for, for decades, how does that fit into the, the BDS movement's efforts? Uh, sure, I'll try to answer all this in, in a few minutes. Um, on the boycotts and divestment and so on against Russians, ironically, within weeks, Western uh, 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 identity and opinion-based boycotts against Russian art, Russian music, literature, sports, even Russian cats, even Russian medical patients, uh, um, all of this has effectively demolished almost every single excuse propagated by Israel and its anti-Palestinian apologists in the West against our much more morally consistent complicity-based BDS calls for accountability and justice. So if you accept calling for boycotts against all Russians because they're Russian, what about a much more moral boycott that targets complicity specifically, not all Israelis based on identity? It targets the military funding. How about stopping the $4 billion you spend on Israel to kill us and besiege us and ethnically cleanse us? It is a much more morally compelling case to defend that as opposed to boycotting every single person who belongs to this identity, which, which, was, which is very hateful, very xenophobic. But with the dollar, with the IMF, with the threat of blunt force, the US establishment has largely succeeded in preventing almost all states from taking serious measures to hold Israel and its apartheid regime accountable. It's not by coincidence that very few states dare to come out. I mean, they vote for Palestine, for Palestinian rights at the United Nations, 
the US got to live with that. And Israel, the United States, and, and some banana republics vote against Palestinians, but the absolute majority of humanity votes with the Palestinians. But when it comes to actual measures to end complicity with Israeli apartheid, very few states take measures uh, uh, because they're bullied, because they're intimidated. And the US is not just any bully, it's the only empire around. So it's really, really scary. And if it's not direct military force, it's the dollar, it's the, it's the financial bullying that hurts uh, as well as, as we've seen in many countries. But since 2014, about whether BDS is impactful or not, because it's funny, since 2014, Israel's regime has recognized the strategic impact of BDS and has, until very recently, a few months ago, for years, they've allocated an entire government ministry for fighting BDS. We've had our own anti-BDS Israeli government ministry, including using intelligence services to spy on the movement, to try to sabotage our networks, including wielding legal warfare or lawfare to try to silence BDS advocates, frivolous lawsuits across the United States, tens of lawsuits that are usually thrown out of court, but the chilling effect is the key. They're, they're trying to, to, to have this chilling effect to intimidate us. Clearly then, Israel realizes the serious impact of BDS. Even recently in January, the Israeli government decided to allocate more resources for fighting BDS. They have revived something called Solomon's Sling, a failed, total failure project of the Netanyahu era against BDS. They're reviving it with tens of millions of dollars in budgets until 2025. Uh, why is that then? Yes, we don't have any states endorsing BDS, not yet, but we have large pension funds, some of the largest pension funds in the world, some major mainline churches in the US, as Olivia mentioned, some multinationals across the world are divesting, pulling out of apartheid, largely due to BDS campaigning. It's happening. Some of the biggest pension funds are pulling out of companies that are implicated in the occupation and settlements in apartheid. We're strengthening more than ever our intersectional partnerships, as was mentioned. And this is a very important aspect of, of uh, BDS. This growing consensus, Khaled, in the human rights community globally that Israel is perpetrating the crime against humanity of apartheid against the entire Palestinian people is not easy to dismiss. It's a very, very important step that is bringing our South Africa moment closer. It is mainstreaming something that we in the BDS movement have struggled for since for 17 years, saying that Israel is also an apartheid state and needs to be opposed as South Africa was opposed. Now it's get, we're getting much closer. It's becoming really difficult for even some of the more liberal states globally to defend their position of complicity with Israel. So while bullying by Israel's anti-Palestinian politicians in the US and elsewhere may intimidate states in, uh, and make them fail to uphold their legal and moral duty to do no harm, to end complicity, that, that's what we're asking for, we're winning at the grassroots and civil society levels. Not yet at the decision-making levels, but at lower levels we are spreading compared to five years ago. There's just no comparison. As I said earlier, 16% of Jewish Americans support BDS today. Imagine what this was five, seven years ago. It was much, much, much smaller. Uh, and this is bound to trickle up 
to echo what Olivia said, to elected officials. I mean, ultimately, politicians are politicians. When they see a big constituency pushing towards something, they will follow. No matter what, no matter how much the lobby tries to intimidate them, they need the votes. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. We'll, we're building it one step at a time. And then we will see a flood of pressure to end complicity reaching Congress, one city at a time, one state at a time, and eventually Congress, exactly as happened during the South Africa anti-apartheid movement, which I was personally involved in. It's not something I read about. It's not something my grandfather told me about. It's something I know from my personal experience as an activist at Columbia University. It, it seemed in the 1980s impossible to see the end of apartheid. And when some of my fellow engineering students would ask me, why are you demonstrating against apartheid? Do you think it will evaporate? It will end in your lifetime? At that time, I was not very optimistic. I said, no, maybe it won't. It's so powerful, supported by Thatcher, Reagan, but I'm doing it out of a moral commitment because I see the intersection of, of, of those struggles and against injustice everywhere. So might can make right coercively, but only temporarily. Ultimately, right will gain might and prevail. Thanks, thanks Omar. Uh, Brian, I wanna come back to you for a second on this legislation issue again. And you know, back in 2015, 2016, when the anti-boycott laws, um, anti-free speech laws um, started popping up in states, I remember I was tracking these and I, I remember my, my analysis at the time was they've gone too far, right? Um, Americans are not gonna sit by quietly no matter how they feel on Israel-Palestine, they're not gonna sit by quietly and allow um, legislation to, to, to spread around the country that, that is a template for quashing free speech on literally any issue in, that you can come up with. And, and I was wrong. I mean, these are bipartisan states across the country and it, they passed without really any controversy um, from, from except for the ACLU speaking up and some other free speech activists. Um, I want to talk about how you see the broader threat. Um, for folks who don't know, the state laws opposing boycott are not written about the Palestinians, right? They're written in, in, by inference about the Palestinians, but basically they're, they're based on a logic which says the state um, should not be using taxpayer money for things that taxpayers don't support. And therefore we can tell you, we, we can decide what taxpayers thinks are important and, and refuse to have contracts with companies that boycott the things that the state thinks. You know, it's, it, it, it's, a very, it's a general logic that can be reapplied to other things. And that was always clear that that could happen. Um, but that's not hypothetical anymore. There's this broader threat to free speech. We've seen in the past, starting in 2021, but really this has taken off in 2020, 2022, um, the proliferation of laws that are openly using the anti-BDS legislation as a template, and they are targeting protests of the fossil fuel industry, for example, and those are being supported by ALEC. Um, they're targeting the uh, boycott or quote unquote discrimination of the guns and ammunition industry. I don't know who is behind that, but those are moving just as rapidly as the fossil fuel ones. So maybe Alec is there too. Um, and then we've seen there was a really interesting one introduced just recently in Idaho, where effectively they have said that any industry that's important to the state, if you boycott or discriminate against that, you can't do business with the state. So the idea that this is a template is not a fantasy. So, or even hypothetical. So can you talk again more broadly about the threat this whole framing, this reframing of what the state is allowed to put limits on, um, what, what that looks like, 
And can you also talk about how you see this playing out when the interests of folks who maybe aren't related to Israel Palestine, Palestine are implicated? Because we've, we, I think a lot of us have come to believe that until this hits home, you know, if they're not coming from my free speech, I'm willing to ignore it. Um, but it does seem to be that they're coming for other people's free speech as well. Thanks, Laura. So I, I want to start by addressing the logic that you identified that the states are using to justify a lot of these laws, including the Israel anti-boycott laws, which is sort of, you may have a right to do this on your own, you know, spare time, but we as the public, you know, we can then boycott you if we don't like what you're doing. And this is a really old argument. It goes back at least until the beginning of the 20th century. And, you know, in the 1930s, I think, you know, Justice Holmes used to say, you know, you have a First Amendment right to say whatever you want, but you don't have a First Amendment right to be a policeman. But the Supreme Court rejected this logic during the McCarthy era. At that time, states and federal governments were going around the country basically saying, if you are a member of the Communist Party, if you participate in any subversive groups, if you're associated with any people who identify as communists, you're going to lose your government job. You, can, you can't work for the government. You can't work at state universities. You can't get any government funding um, for your projects, et cetera. Um, and the Supreme Court stepped in and said that this, this wave of McCarthyism violated the First Amendment. And, and the principles it established there were essentially that while it's true that the government can to some degree you know, dictate what you say while you're on the government's time and dime, when you're off the clock, your free speech rights are your own. And so the government can't retaliate against you for saying something privately that the government doesn't like. And that applies to government employees who are allowed to have their own politics outside of their job. So for example, if you know, you're a local policeman and, and you don't endorse the mayor, that doesn't mean you get to you have to lose your job. That was the previous system. Whereas if, if you weren't allied with the local power interest in that town, bad luck. But the Supreme Court has said, we don't want to live in that society. We want people to be able to express their political beliefs and still have a right um, to work, including to work for the government. And, and we're concerned about the government using its market power, which you know has ballooned really over the past 30 to 40 years to you know unimaginable proportions uh, from the perspective of the framers. Um, we don't want the government using that market power to basically create its own marketplace of ideas and suppress dissenting viewpoints. Um, and so when we saw it, for example, in Arkansas, when it, when it really came down to it, the state's only argument, the only argument that they were able to press on appeal is there is no such thing as a right to boycott. So that's why the logic of these laws can never stop at the government contractors, because the only way that the government has the power to regulate the contractors under Black Letter First Amendment law is to say that there is no right to engage in this activity. It's not protected speech at all. And so what, when these laws start with government contractors, they never end there. And that's exactly what we've seen with the Israel Anti-Boycott Act in Congress. Um, now, I know I've been kind of a broken record on this, but there really is a significant slippery slope problem here in this law, exactly what you've been discussing with these new ALEC-backed bills that we saw get started in Texas and, and then are now metastasizing around the country. Um, again, for 40 years after Claiborne was decided, the state and federal governments did not attempt to interfere with individuals' private consumer boycott activity. And it's only when we started seeing these Israel anti-boycott laws pop up that other interest groups, other you know, organizations, causes, et cetera, started taking notice and saying, hey, this is actually a really good way to get protection against any sort of market blowback I'm gonna get for you know, controversial positions you know, my company's taken or engaged in. And so we're starting to see you know, kind of the dam breaking as more and more industries are going to start asking for these special protections from state legislatures. Um, so the, the scope 
of prescribed boycott activity is going to get wider and wider and wider. And that's exactly um, what you're seeing, for example, in Idaho. And so if the brakes don't come down soon from the courts, sooner or later, what we're going to see is that every state is going to have its own special list of pet causes and interests that are protected against consumer boycott activity. And you're going to have tremendous amounts of government interference, not just in the commercial marketplace, but in the marketplace of ideas by using these kinds of anti-boycott laws. Um, now, can I just also, I'm sorry, just jump into, and if you want to address this, I mean, it isn't, it is not um, conspiracy theory to suggest that these new laws are patterned on the anti-Israel anti-boycott laws. Um, there are articles that you can find members of these legislatures explicitly saying, we use this as a template. And even when it doesn't say that, you can see there's these, the, over the years, as the cases have gone to court, there's been amendments to the anti-boycott um, legislation to try to make it harder to challenge in court. And those, those tweaks to the language are replicated exactly in the new legislation targeting other issues. So it's not, a, it's not paranoia. No, and, and this is not unique to the boycott context either. I mean, I, you know, state legislatures you know, have been called the laboratories of democracy, but when they see that something works, when they see that something gets by the courts, um, and you know, is successful um, from their perspective, they're going to start copying it over and over and over again. And so you end up seeing it applied across a range of you know, different areas. And that's why we at the ACLU say that First Amendment rights are indivisible. If you take First Amendment rights away from one politically unpopular group today, they're going to end up being taken away from lots of other groups in the future. And whoever is holding the cards um, in the state legislature at that moment is going to use that power um, to their own political ends. And that's why the courts have to come in and robustly protect First Amendment rights for everybody, regardless of how popular they may be in the political atmosphere at the moment. Um, and you know, in closing, I think it's just important to remember why boycotts in particular are constitutionally protected, right? It, it's not for nothing that we say that people vote with their pocketbooks. What boycotts do is they allow a large number of loosely connected people with perhaps little individual market power to band together and make their voices collectively heard when individually they might be lost or silenced. And if the government has the power to outlaw that kind of group protest activity, what it's really claiming is the power to suppress dissent. And that's the hallmark of an authoritarian society. And that's what we, we don't wanna end up in. Uh, thanks, Brian. Um, Olivia, I want to come back to you, and it looks like you will probably have the the last word on uh, on the panel. So feel free to to respond to anything that has been raised or, or to make any concluding um, statements. But I, I want to come back to the issue of um, the pushback against the BDS and Palestinian rights activism in general, which um, it seems to be particularly focused on the younger generation and college and university campuses. We've seen extraordinary efforts to target and delegitimize campus organizing and free speech and to target professors uh, and curricula uh, viewed as pro-BDS or even simply critical of Israel. Um, where do you see this battle for the hearts and, and minds of, of younger uh, Americans, uh, many of whom are increasingly hold views and values um, defined less by tribal loyalties and more by uh, sort of more universal concerns. Um, so where do you see that going uh, as far as the young people? Yeah, um, so as a, a recently young person, I, I turned 30 next week, so I like to think I'm still young, but if not, I was young not too long ago. <laughs> uh, I just go back to when I got involved in the movement, which was in 2016 with the rise of Bernie Sanders. 
um, and the movement that followed, the huge growth of DSA, the movement for Black Lives, Sunrise Movement. Um, we saw the rise of very young, very progressive politicians like AOC. Um, so many young people were energized at that time and, and are carrying the movement right now for even younger people to join up, and they are joining up. Um, and it's increasingly clear that this very young, very progressive movement, you know, Palestine is a part of it. Um, for my generation and, and the generation after me, you cannot be progressive if you don't support Palestine. Um, the smears that those in power have tried to use in the past are not sticking. It's not working to deter young people. They're not falling for it anymore. Um, I know that a, a 2020 Gallup poll showed that support for Palestine among people ages 18 to 35 has tripled since 1997. Uh, I imagine that number is even higher after the events of 2021. Um, a 2020 poll by J Street showed that 22% of American Jews under age 40 support a full boycott of Israel. Um, I think we'll see this play out on campuses for sure, but also in workplaces where young people enter the workplace and get involved in their unions or lead efforts to stop their unions or their employers uh, from being complicit, uh, like we're seeing now at Google and Amazon, for example. Um, you know, anecdotally, I also in my free time coach high school track and field at the most diverse high school in Oregon. So I have white kids, I have black kids, I have kids whose families just came from Mexico or from Vietnam or from Somalia or from Eastern Europe. And the thing they have in common is that everyone is sharing about Palestine on their Instagram, you know, along with sharing about Black Lives Matter and a lot of other causes. These kids just take it for granted that Palestine is a part of the things that they should care about. Um, and they do care about these things in a way that I think is even more active than my generation. You know, they have anti-racist youth clubs in their middle school. Um, and Palestine is a very, very much a part of, of that anti-racist progressive movement for them without controversy and without question. Um, and I think that is an amazing position for us to be in as we look towards the future. Thanks, Olivia. And that's a, a wonderful note to end on. Um, this has been a really terrific panel. I want to thank our participants, Olivia, Omar, and Brian, uh, on behalf of MEI and FMEP. Uh, also, thank you to all of our participants who are, are people who, who are part of this webinar live in the audience. And thanks especially to people who submitted questions. Um, this will be recorded and available eventually for the public. So I think everyone will benefit from what was really a, a rich, rich discussion. Um, next week's discussion, the topic will be, where's the Palestinian Mandela? And we're asking that a little bit tongue in cheek. The uh, panelists will be Ahmed Abu Artima from Gaza, Palestinian writer and activist, Mar Marwa Fatafta from Access Now, and Fadi Quran from Avaz. So we hope folks can join us for that. And with that, we will be ending the session. Thank you all so very, very much. <laughs>